You are listening to WCAT Radio, your station for quality Catholic programming. Your selected program will begin right after a word from our sponsor, GroupM7.com, a web design and hosting company. Log on to GroupM7.com today and let them know that WCAT Radio sent you. You know, my finest childhood memories was the Saturday morning movies for about four bits each. My brother and I could split a Coke and a big box of popcorn and watch movies about Tarzan, Jane, and their Amazon River adventures. Well, maybe that's where Jeff Bezos took his name. His Amazon.com is now the largest online retailer in the world. I'm Michael Malfood with Group M7, the oldest and largest website design firm in East Texas. And here's my point. And as usual, it's a good one. If your website is modern and up-to-date, mobile and search engine friendly, it matters not whether you sell a product or provide information about your goods and services, your sales justifiably will increase just like theirs. The world uses the internet. We can improve your website and your email. Look at our giant portfolio at groupm7.com. Since 1995, there's only one web and there's only one group and it's us. It's Group M7. Monsignor. Thank you, Teresa. We are in volume two, show number 28. We are in a very difficult time of history, but it is very important for us to remember. And I like the look that we're looking at it through St. Louis eyes. Yeah. So um, anyway, last time around, we ended with talking about a slave auction that had taken place at the courthouse steps. You know, that's that same old courthouse. This is still there today. And those steps, you know, that's where it was. And the auction was a failure because no one was able to bid any higher than $8 for each of those 11 slaves, which, of course, made no sense at all. And so what happens then is that we realize that the reason why the, the bidding was so low was because the crowd was made up of a group of organized men. They call themselves the White Awakes. I want to talk a little bit about them. This is a group of young toughs. And they've been organized by a St. Louisan. His name is Frank Blair. We've already seen his brother before. Montgomery Blair is in Washington, D.C. He's the lawyer who represents the Scott family in the Dred Scott decision. His brother is back here in St. Louis, and he has put together this group. It's a paramilitary organization. They don't wear fatigues, but they did wear uh, uniforms. Okay. The object behind this group was to protect Republican gatherings from hecklers and thugs from the opposite party. So what happens is that you'd have a Republican politician making a speech, and then you'd have a, a group that would come over from the Democrats, and they would heckle, or even worse, they'd break out into fights. And so these guys, their job was to make sure that none of that happened. And sometimes they went on the offensive, and they would go and heckle Democratic. Yeah. Uh, There's one example where Blair was giving a talk in Ironton, Missouri, and he knew that it was not going to be friendly territory. So he went down with 300 wide awakes. And there they are. They're all dressed in uniform, and they're all basically speaking with a very thick accent because they're almost all Germans. They're recent Germans. These are not the old Germans that came over in the 30s. These are recent ones that came over after 1848, 1849. So their thinking is a lot different from the old Germans. These are socialists and free thinkers. And, 
You know, they're not the church-going kind that you had before. There's that group there. Then there's also another group uh, that is just pure Germans, and this was called the Schwarzer Jäger Corps, or the, the Black Riflemen, and they wore black uniforms. And they're intimidating. There's a clear militancy that is coming about in an alliance between, on the one hand, the Republican Party, and on the other hand, the German community. And again, I have to emphasize the difference between the older Germans that have been here for now for a generation and these new guys. These new guys are very, very different. And again, they're going to be led and inspired by Frank Blair. It's Frank Blair Jr. He is also one of the founders of the Republican Party. And along with him is going to be another newspaper editor by the name of Gratz Brown. He's an early collaborator with Blair. And then another who's going to be a newspaper editor also, and this is Peter Foy. Not only is he an editor, but he also serves on a a committee called the St. Louis Committee of Safety. This organization is set up specifically to send out spies and to monitor St. Louisans who might be thinking a little too Southern in their thought. Now, in the German community, you also have other men that are leaders, and they're in tune. It's just that they're speaking German rather than English. And one of those is Henry Bornstein, and another is Arnold Kreckel and Carl Bernays. Bernays is the editor of the most important German newspaper in St. Louis. It's a daily newspaper called Anzeiger des Westens. Later on, in, by the 1870s, there were more German daily newspapers than there were English ones. Wow. I mean, that's pretty incredible, but yeah, it is. His newspaper is very strong, pro-Republican, and he's getting a lot of German support from that. At the same time, he's also a free thinker. We're going to see later on that the Catholic community, in fact, I've mentioned this before, the Catholic community reacts against Anzeigertes Vestens, and you come up with German Catholic newspapers that are trying to counter their free-thinking arguments. These people are definitely not Catholic. They're anti-Catholic. Henry Borstein himself is interesting. He was part of the 1849 revolution in Germany. When it failed, he had to flee. He comes over to the United States. He's one of those who is deeply affected by the Macintosh disaster when that mulatto steamboat worker was burned to death by a a mob in, in St. Louis. He's very much affected by that. He is a supporter of Thomas Hart Brenton. His ideas, which we talked about last time around, he also encourages Gratz Brown and Frank Blair in wonderful articles about how wonderful they're doing, and so is a very strong supporter in all of this. Arnold Kreckel is actually in St. Charles, and he has a newspaper out there too, and it's called the St. Charles Democrat, uh, but it's with a K because it's a German language. Interesting fellow because he has a farm out in St. Charles in which he employs slaves, and yet he's an abolitionist. <laughs> Go figure. He's not actually an abolitionist. He's a free soilist, uh-huh. you know, but, uh, and, and a strong supporter of the Republican Party. All of the goals of all of these men that I just mentioned, whether they're English speakers or German speakers, their goal is to prove their American loyalty by being loyal to the Republican Party and to the Federal Union. Many of these men had fought 
in Germany and lost the battle for liberty and equality. And now they're here in America, their adopted land, and they're willing to take up arms again for this ideal. And this is going to give uh, a big boost, especially in this part of the country, to the Union cause. As I said, Breckenridge didn't get much support in the election of 1860 here in St. Louis. Only 2% voted for him, and obviously none of those spoke German. There was, however, a lot of sympathy for the Southern position. And so the White Awakers had their counterpart in an organization that simply called themselves the Minutemen, uh, the White Awakes, which are, for the most part, German, and from the Revolution of 1848-49, and Republican and willing to fight in brawls for the Republican Party. And now you have the Minutemen. This particular group is, for the most part, they're they're all English speakers. They have pro-Southern sympathies and they're Democrats. They are not necessarily Breckenridge Democrats, though. They're more like Douglas Democrats. And they held their headquarters at a residence. This is a Bartholomew Burhol's residence, uh, the big old house, and they uh, they would meet there. They were part of an overarching organization called the Southern Rights Democrats. It's pretty obvious about what they mean by <laughs> that. Most of the St. Louis elite were actually what you would call constitutional unionists without necessarily being followers of Bell. Little C, little U constitutional unionists. They're favoring preserving the union with slavery intact and not favoring secession. However, they also believed that if states were to secede from the union, that they should not be forced back in again, that eventually you can win more union support with honey than you can with vinegar. Now, this would be people like the Choteau family, the banker James Lucas, George Taylor, who was the president of the Pacific Railroad at the time, and one of the most important merchandisers in St. Louis at the time, a man by the name of Derek January. There's a street in South St. Louis named after him. Yes, there is. Yeah. Well, on January 4th of 1861, President Buchanan, who has basically done nothing about any of this, calls for a day of prayer and fasting. And he sends an unarmed supply ship to the federal garrison at Fort Sumter, Charleston, South Carolina. It's out in the harbor. That very same day, Claiborne Fox Jackson is inaugurated as the governor of Missouri. This is the guy who married all three of the Sappington daughters. Now he is the governor of Missouri. He ran on a conditional union Democratic ticket. His official stand was for the union preserving slavery, allowing states to secede from the Union and trying to persuade them to come back in. That's what he ran on. But his inaugural address clearly showed that he was on the Southern side. He said this. He said, Missouri's honor, her interest, and her sympathies point alike in one direction and to determine her to stand by the South. So by this time, 11 states have already left the Union, and he's basically hinting that it's going to be Missouri's turn now, too. The supply ship got to Charleston Harbor, but it was turned back when it came under fire from the South Carolina militia. And so now Fort Sumter's there, but 
it's not getting any supplies. A little bit earlier than that, there was a convention that was held at the Mercantile Library here in St. Louis, and the idea was to bring together the Union Democrats and the Republicans in order to preserve the Union, and they elected delegates for a statewide convention to consider Missouri's position on the Union or secession. They were not going to let Governor Jackson do this on his own. Well, rather than let the political will have its own way, what you had was both sides began maneuvering for advantages. And there was a lot at stake, of course. You know, one of the things is that, first of all, here in St. Louis was the depository for federal funds in this area, in, in the Midwest. And uh, there was something in excess of $400,000 that was being held in one spot, in, in one building. $400,000, that's a lot of money back then. And it was guarded by one guard, one watchman. That was it. Added to that, uh, the St. Louis Arsenal was the largest cache of weapons in the entire West. The Arsenal, which is not there, t it's no longer there it's today. The, yeah, okay. If you go Arsenal Street all the way down to the Mississippi River, that's where the Arsenal had been. At that spot, there were 60,000 muskets, 90,000 pounds of gunpowder, 40 cannons, and a million rounds of ammunition. Now, the pro-unionists, they wanted to bolster the defense of the Arsenal because the Arsenal had a very small unit there defending it. And the idea was that the Wide Awakes would come down and supplement the Arsenal's garrison. The commander is Major William Bell. He flatly refused and said, nobody gets in here unless you're federal. And then he said that if he needs help, he would turn to the Missouri militia. Well, <laughs> you know, who's head of the Missouri militia? The governor. Jackson has already said his intention to go south, and so mm -hmm. that's not going to go over real well either. And, of course, that was music to the ears of Governor Jackson and also his militia commander. It's this Brigadier General Daniel M. Frost. Frost is an interesting fellow. You know, St. Louis University's main campus is called Frost Campus. It's named after him. Okay. And we'll talk a little bit more about him later on. He was a Catholic, devout Catholic. Before anything could be done in either way, whether it be state militia or it be the Wide Awakes, Major Bell was replaced. And it seems that the force behind this was the St. Louis Committee of Safety because they had heard that he had said what he said. And so Frank Blair wrote to Montgomery Blair explaining all of this. Now, Montgomery Blair, who had been a, a lawyer last time we saw in Washington, D.C., right. has now been appointed the postmaster general in the Lincoln administration. Okay. So he's got access to the president of the United States. Very powerful now. And so good old Major Bell ruined his military career by getting into this cabal with uh, Jackson and Frost. That line of communications is going to be used a lot for the, for the Committee of Safety in order to pull strings in St. Louis to make sure that St. Louis and Missouri doesn't go for the Confederacy. Now, Bell is gone. The garrison there is supplemented by a fresh company of regulars, and they needed that because there were only 48 men that were guarding all of that munitions. And in February, another company arrives from Kansas, this is under the command of Captain Nathaniel Lyon, and we're going to see a lot about him a little bit later on. Lyon caught the eye of Frank Blair and the Committee of Safety, and they thought this guy was great. 
They were really happy to see him in St. Louis. General Frost, the state militia leader, mustered together five companies of Minutemen and brought them into the state militia and then began making plans for a statewide camp. Let's see now, where do we want to have this camp with all the state militia, including the Minutemen? Let's do it in St. Louis. In fact, his original idea was to hold the camp next to the arsenal, which he would have outnumbered considerably. At this point, the soldiers who were at Jefferson Barracks then were transferred up to the arsenal too. (laughs) (laughs) You got about 200 of them. And so when you have them plus the two other companies that have come in, plus the original number, 48, you've got about five, 600 men now at the arsenal. But still, they'll be outnumbered by state militia if this happens. <laughs> I don't think I'd want to be in that arsenal. That. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, that's for sure. There is an election that takes place in April of 1861, April 1st. There's an election. <laughs> a new mayor is elected. His name is Daniel Taylor. And Taylor is a conditional Unionist Democrat. And he has just unseated the Republican. The mayor before that was a Republican. This was John Howell, H-O-W. His victory was not so much for Taylor and not so much against Howell, but against the Wide Awakes. St. Louisans voted against the Wide Awakes and they voted against the Republican Party because a lot of people were just downright scared. Mm -hmm. You know, you have this paramilitary organization going around and they're all in uniform and they're not speaking English, they're speaking German. And they're showing their strength wherever they want to. So that made a lot of St. Louisans very upset. I'm sure it did. Yeah. And now what you have is the control of the mayor's office now is in the hands of the conditional Democrats, and that's joined by the control of the police board. And so there's a new police board that's established. So the mayor gets rid of any Republicans on the police board. He brings in the most radical Democrats, and one of those is Basil Duke, who is one of the organizers of the Minutemen. In a very short time, the police board then ordered the police to go around and to start closing down restaurants and beer halls on Sundays, specifically German ones. And then they began harassing German restaurant owners. So the tensions grew. So you have then police making these raids on these restaurants, closing them down. The restaurant here business is going down. All this, the tensions grew. And finally then the overall commander of the federal forces in the West, located here in St. Louis, is General William S. Harney. And he tries to reconcile all of these groups. He's trying to bring them together. His hope is to build a broad understanding between Missouri and St. Louis politicians on the one side and the military leaders on the state and federal level. And so he meets with these people and tries to cool some of the worst excesses going on. The one fly in the ointment in all of this is Captain Lyon. Captain Lyon doesn't want to have anything to do with this. He might just be a captain, but he's got the ear of the Committee of Public Safety, and also he is a darling as far as the German newspapers are going and Frank Blair. And Frank Blair has access to Montgomery Blair, who has access to Lincoln. Lincoln. Yeah, Lyon is a man of action and not necessarily one that we would uh, be so excited about. Mm -hmm. He is a graduate of West Point. He had fought Indians in Florida, the Seminole Wars, 
He had fought the Mexicans in the Mexican War. He was sent out to California where he fought the Indians. And then he was assigned to Kansas where he fought a very aggressive action against the border ruffians, basically on the Jayhawk side. He is definitely a man of action but also of cruelty. In one instance in California, there was a single white man who was murdered by an Indian. And to make an example out of this, Lyon went in to that town and wiped out the entire village, just killed everybody, man, woman, and child. So he's a take-no-prisoner kind of guy. And he did the same thing in Kansas. So when he comes up to St. Louis, Harney is going to look weak. He's going to look even treacherous on the part of the Committee of Public Safety. They're going to try to find ways to get rid of him. They'd like to have Lyon instead. And then all of a sudden, it happens. On April 12th of 1861, Confederate artillery shelled Fort Sumter after it refused to surrender. And with that, the most terrible war in American history had begun. And St. Louis is going to find itself right in the middle of all of this because of those tensions between Captain Lyon on the one hand and Harney on the other and the White Awakes on the one hand and Minutemen on the other, the state militia under General Frost. And all of this is going to converge almost a month later in an incident that happens here in St. Louis that's going to bring bloodshed to the city itself. And that's the Camp Jackson affair. Do we have time to go there today, or do we need to... No, we can we talk a little bit about it, but we'll really want to do it. do it next yeah. week when we have the whole show. You know, the one thing that I'd like to say in all of this before we get into that mm-hmm. is that Archbishop Kenrick mm. is also trying to maintain peace. Mm. He even sends out a pastoral letter, which I'll bring in next Great. time around. It's a letter that is sent to all the priests of his diocese, and especially in St. Louis, urging them not to get involved in the politics of this thing and to try to get their people to be civil to each other and discuss these issues without fighting over them. No bloodshed. There are people that are going to try to maneuver around him, but he's a very clever man. At one point, General Frost asks if, when he does form the militia in St. Louis, he asks the archbishop if uh, in the morning they would ring the bells of the Catholic churches all throughout the city at a particular time, which would be the reverie for the militia. And the archbishop says, no way. We're not participating in any of this. Later on, the federal army is going to try to get Father DeSmet to be a chaplain for their army. And Archbishop Kenry finds out about it, and he tells Father DeSmet, don't you dare, because he knew that he was going to be used as a propaganda tool. Mm-hmm. Later on, when the federal government said that all churches in America should fly a federal flag from the, from the church, Kenry refused to do it. And, and at one point, one of the secretaries, I think Secretary of State Seward, complained to Rome or something about this, and it even went so far as to hint that it would be nice for Rome to get rid of Archbishop Kenrick. And of course, the response back was, he's in his own diocese, <laughs> you're not going to get this. And uh, Seward, uh, who succeeded in buying Alaska for us, was not even able to get a flag of the flagpole. <laughs> 
some bishops flew federal flags over their residence, okay. but not, not over, over the, the church. church. <laughs> but others did. The bishops came out in different uh, different ways. So next time around, we're going to take a look at bloody May 10th, 1861, and how two individuals who were there that day are going to find themselves on two totally different paths throughout the Civil War. Okay, that sounds great. Okay. No, it doesn't sound great, but it's <laughs> All right, shall we close with yeah. a prayer in your blessing? Glory be to the Father, to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. As it was in the beginning, as now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. May Almighty God bless you in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Thank you, Monsignor. Certainly. Thank you for listening to a production of WCAT Radio. Please join us in our mission of evangelization. And don't forget... Love lifts up where knowledge takes flight.